You're listening to Who Killed Misha Pavlik, a Saskatchewan RCMP-created podcast outlining the true 2006 homicide of Misha Pavlik and the ongoing investigation. This is the second episode of the three-part feature. I would like to take a moment to recognize the land on which this podcast was produced is Treaty 4 territory and homeland of the Métis. On behalf of the Saskatchewan RCMP, I offer my respect to the First Nation and Métis peoples of this land. This podcast features the voices of Saskatchewan RCMP officers directly involved in investigating the death of Misha Pavlik, as well as Misha's loved ones and other RCMP experts. We want to caution listeners that some of the information or audio may be considered disturbing or traumatic. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Mandy, and I work for the Saskatchewan RCMP. According to Statistics Canada, there were 20 homicides that occurred in Saskatchewan RCMP jurisdiction in 2006, which were investigated by the RCMP Major Crimes Unit. This does not include homicides that occurred where there is a municipal police service of jurisdiction in the province. For example, in the cities of Regina, Saskatoon, Prince Albert, Moose Jaw, Weyburn, or Estevan. Misha Pavlik was the victim of homicide on May 21st, 2006. So let's start out. Tell me about Misha. I think it's a privilege to talk about him and to share the memories I have. Lorne Pavlik spoke at length, telling stories about his son. He shared openly about Misha and life prior to 2006. Yeah, well, from the time he was little, like a toddler, he was uh, independent. He loved to, uh, he was highly active, uh, yeah, little boy. He, uh, he well, when he uh, was about uh, five or six, I think he started getting into athletics and, and was really good at athletics and uh I took him to a lot of hockey games. Um, we've had all kinds of memories, I guess. He wasn't an all-star, but he played on excellent teams, and they won all kinds of trophies. And um, so I got to be a hockey father for quite a few years. I also had the opportunity to speak with Misha's mom, Susan, and his sister, Kathleen, all of our conversations are virtual, not only because of the current pandemic climate, but also because they each live in different cities in North America. There's beautiful baby pictures of him, and, and young, when he was younger, and um, he, he liked sports, he had a lot of friends, and uh, yeah, he was busy, physically busy, yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, Kathleen Marshall. I'm Misha's sister. He was sort of the quintessential annoying little brother. (laughs) We fought a lot, you know, like normal siblings do. And he was also adorable. Uh, He had big brown eyes and the longest eyelashes ever. And, um, He's just like a beautiful baby and a beautiful boy. And 
he was my only sibling. My parents um, adopted him when I was like turning six years old. And um, I remember the day I met him. I came home, I think from school, and my parents were like, you gotta like go look up on the bed. Um, and I walked up to their bedroom and there's this tiny baby, six week old baby laying in the middle of the bed. And I was like, wow. And I thought, you know, I thought they, they got him and brought him into the family because I realized, you know, I was learning things about family dynamics and like, I'm never going to be an auntie and, you know, um, <laughs> and so then all of a sudden now I have this little brother and I was like, oh, wow, maybe I will be. Unfortunately, that's not the case. I won't get that opportunity, but, um, yeah, that I, he was, you know, just everything you think a sibling would be. Like, he was my annoying little brother, but I loved him. Yes, he liked team sports. He liked, he liked all of that. Susan lights up when she shares her memories about Misha. She's sitting on a couch, speaking with me through a tablet. I'm glad I can see her, not only to put a face to her name, but because her smile says so much about her love for and relationship with her son. We would make uh, pies or things like that. He liked to cook, not on a continual basis or anything, but uh, special times we would bake together. Yeah. And he had a... <laughs> he was pretty cute. He was pretty good looking, I think. Pretty nice guy. We exposed him to, you know, his family at the opera. I don't know why I bought him a seat, because he sat in my lap. We, we did a lot of traveling, I guess. Um... For some reason, there's this one memory that sticks out in my mind. And he had just turned five. And uh, I, I grew up, when I was a kid, I, we uh, had a cabinet, Candle Lake. And um, I remember taking him there for the first time. And I took him to, the, to a creek where I used to cast. And I used to tell him, this is where I caught my first fish. And he, on his first cast at five years old, caught a pickerel. And uh, which was a really exciting. His eyes were like saucers. And uh, I, I helped him bring it in, but he was determined to lift the fish out of the water. And uh, so I have memories, fond memories of those kinds of things. And I, I taught him how to drive. Um, when he had his learner's license, he was, I said, do you want to drive? And it's a five hour trip to my hometown, right? So we were taking the back roads and uh, up to Swift Current and, um, you know, he's driving, you know, and maybe, I don't know, after Lacadena, it wasn't too far, like 20, 30 miles. He was like, that's it? Like, yeah, like that. Then he just keep driving. That's what you do. So they let me take the wheel. Yeah, another four hours to go. It's like, yeah, okay. Can you describe him? So obviously you've touched on sports, and I've seen some photos of him, and he's wearing a jersey. He's got a big smile. Yeah. For people that have never never had the opportunity to meet him, how would you describe him? Actually, 
the best descriptions I got about Misha's personality uh, were from his friends and his friends' parents. Uh, I always thought it would be great to have a son who's a stand-up guy, you know, that somebody that was able to accept love and give love, right? He, he had a lot of friends. We had, um, he had a lot of friends. I had the privilege of speaking with Misha's sister, Kathleen, on a Saturday afternoon in April. Her responses to my questions are thoughtful and sincere. It's heartbreaking to hear the tragedy she and her family have experienced. He was very, I think he had a lot of friends. And I think I didn't realize how many friends he had until after he died and I met so many of them. I'm just going to just change something. I need to say something. Angel, you know, I mean, the, the idea that most parents look at their kids and they think, well, they're angels, they, you know, they can do no wrong. That's not real. It's, I, I think that each kid has a temperament. And uh, Misha wasn't an angel. He got into trouble. He got into different things. And, uh, but he, could, he was not a good liar. Because he'd either come back and admit, you know, I've been doing this and this, and this is what's happened. Uh, or I'd notice in his persona how he acted um, that, he, you know, he was hurt. Uh, and uh, so he'd have to talk that out. And um, uh, we had some issues uh, in terms of that. And uh, so he left the house for several months. One of his best friends phoned me and uh, said, Misha's crying in the bedroom. He doesn't know I'm on the phone to you. Can he come home? So it wasn't long after that that Misha came to me uh, after he came back home. And he said, Dad, um, I've uh, been accepted to SIAST. I want to. I want to go back to school, get educated, and uh, have a trade. I, I moved away and I came back, and so I had missed a couple of years with him, and so I wasn't. And he was sort of turning from boy to man at that time, because he was getting closer to like 19 years old, and. Um, you know, so a lot can change in that time. So I didn't really know his friends or his interests. I knew he was thinking about going back to like a trade school to learn a, a trade. And he was trying to get his life sort of back on track because he's he had, um, you know, just he was young and he probably wasn't sure before that what he wanted to do. And so he was starting to come up with a plan for his life. Um. Things were good. I mean, things were good at home, um, right up to his death. Uh, I had the opportunity to tell him I loved him, and he said the same back to me. A lot of parents don't get that opportunity, and I'm, I'm privileged to have had that happen. Uh, yeah. Misha was born on September 20th, 1986. 
Today, in May of 2021, he would be 34 years old. He was 19 years old when he died as a result of stab wounds sustained in an altercation the night of May 21, 2006. Sergeant Brian Jones was the RCMP media liaison officer at the time. In the media briefing held in Regina, Saskatchewan on May 13, 2009, RCMP provided a timeline leading up to the violent confrontation that resulted in Misha's death and the aggravated assault of an 18-year-old Regina man. It is during this critical time frame, approximately 11.25 p.m. and 11.30 p.m., that police have focused their attention and are seeking that important piece of information necessary to solve the case. You're about to hear the voice of Corporal Marcus Crocker of the RCMP Historical Case Unit South. He is the police officer most recently assigned as the lead investigator of the homicide of Misha Pavlik. Misha was on scene and uh, attendees of the party and Misha's friends actually were performing CPR. Uh, EMS took over those uh, life-saving attempts. Misha was uh, pronounced uh, deceased at the scene, but he was transported to the Pasqua Hospital on recommendation uh, of the police just because of of the scene itself and how many uh, people were still there. That night itself, the, the intoxication level would have been uh, one of the, the major factors. The, the emotions, the emotional level of, of a lot of people who were still on scene and friends with Misha, uh, very upset, um, distraught, um, just not thinking clearly, um, trying to process what had just happened. I was actually living in close to downtown, um, actually really close to General Hospital. But when I got the call from my dad, he said something happened, she's been hurt, I don't know how bad, it doesn't sound like it's very good. And I'm like, okay, where are they going? And he said General Hospital, and I uh, hung up the phone, and I called my pastor's wife. And she prayed with me, and I ran. I didn't even drive. I ran to the general emergency room, and I beat everybody there. Phoned my daughter Kathleen, and because we by then were told that they're being brought into the hospital. Strange thing was, we went to the general, and uh, the young man that had been stabbed uh, along with Misha was brought to that hospital and uh, later recovered from his wounds. But Misha wasn't brought there. We were sitting and waiting and waiting. And I'm thinking, this is kind of weird. We're just waiting to find out what was happening. And Misha's friends started, like, filing into the waiting room. Um, They just kind of came out of nowhere. And they were just a whole bunch of them just sitting, waiting to find out what was happening. And we were waiting and watching each ambulance as it came in, and my dad pulled up, and we were waiting, and then um, somebody came and said to 
uh, have us come to the back with them. And so we were walking to the back, and I just had this feeling like this isn't good because this is not how you would, this is not what you would do in the situation where somebody is like in surgery or they're okay. You know, you wouldn't bring the family back to a back room in the emergency room. So they sat us down and they said, you know, he's gone. And then the policeman came to us and the general and said, he's been taken to the past and I've had bad news. And, uh, you know, we went into the family room and that's where we were told that he didn't make it. I, I have, I don't know how I responded. I was like at that point in shock. words but it doesn't register you know in your mind you're thinking am I here really hearing what I think I'm hearing you know I mean the, the memory is kind of blurry I think I said my dad thinks he said but it, at the end of the day it doesn't matter the point is we realized somebody had to tell my mom the best option I think we agreed on at the time was to send our stampede to her house because so she wouldn't be alone to find out sort of in the middle of the night or early in the morning like that would be devastating. Susan, Misha's mom, lives two provinces away in British Columbia. I was sleeping and the door knocked on the door and for some reason anyways and he said anyways he told me and uh I used to work for the police and uh, as an actor, and um, death notification was a, something I never did. We would do it because sometimes they, they would come and I just said, I don't do this. I, and I just wanted him to get that out of my house. Um, because he was lying or whatever. And basically just did leave. And then I had to figure out what was going on. Um, yeah. Then I, um, I own a business and, uh, of course I had to make arrangements to keep the business open and, uh, and I was on an island and it was a long weekend and I couldn't, um, I couldn't leave. Uh, the ferries were booked and, uh, they wouldn't let me on and. So, I had to wait. I couldn't leave. Yeah. Anyway, that's what happened that day. And uh, then I probably called somebody and, uh, yeah. but um, I got in the car and drove to Canmore where I had a brother and then drove Regina. Communication was different in 2006. Clamshell flip and slide cell phones were popular but many people didn't own or carry one yet. To put things into perspective, advertisements from the time promote cell phone features such as two megapixel cameras, the ability to support four gigabyte memory cards, and full physical mini keyboards. Misha's friend Alicia was at home the night of May 21, 2006. She had made the decision to leave Kanukuma on Saturday, the day prior to the altercation. 
yeah, 2006, how did you guys communicate? And that was funny that you say that, because now looking back, I'm like, yeah, I was notified. Like, I had left that party about 36 hours, and I was at home, and I had gotten a phone call. It's not like, you know, your phone texts going off, right? And my mom had said, like, I had a phone call, and I got to the phone, and one of his, like, one of our mutual friends had said that he was killed, and I was just remember being in such shock. Like, I still just get chills thinking about that. And um, I immediately raced over to this mutual friend of ours. And um, there was a, a lot of people who had gathered at this one friend's house. And um, people were just so emotional, upset, in shock, crying. Um, we felt... I think we just felt so helpless, like traumatized kind of thing. It still leaves just like, it just leaves a really big mark still. Lee Rosin was working in the RCMP Divisional Operational Communication Center, or DOCC, the night of May 21st, 2006. She took phone calls from frantic people at Kanukama, seeking police officer assistance. She'll have 16 years of service with the RCMP DOCC later this year. I remember just feeling um, so overwhelmed when you take your headset off and you put it in your locker and you turn around and you think, what just happened? And you sit in your car, <laughs> and, or at least I do, and take just a few minutes to breathe. Normally, if it's a really busy shift, whether I've been dispatching or whether I've been calling, it doesn't matter. I usually shed a few tears, get it out of my system, and then and make the drive home. Staff Sergeant Tim Schwartz was the constable on call in 2006 when he received notification of an incident that happened at the Kanukuma campground near Regina Beach in Saskatchewan. He is no longer working in the RCMP Major Crime Unit, but thought it was important to contribute his perspective as lead investigator at the time. At that point in time, obviously realizing that uh, there's a role for our unit, I then was able to forward more of the information around to the team, and that's when we all met at our office, at our headquarters building, and then started to put a, uh, an investigative plan together. I asked Corporal Marcus Crocker to explain what an investigative plan is. He shared that generally it identifies avenues to help progress an investigation forward. It can include re-interviews of witnesses, interviews of suspects, resubmission of evidence for analysis, among other tasks. Back in 2006, Staff Sergeant Tim Schwartz met with his RCMP Major Crime Unit team at the Regina office before deploying to the scene. Going through your mind, what what... What, what information do I have? What does a scene, you're starting to picture in your mind what the scene might look like from the information that has been provided. You're obviously looking at, you know, evidence, right? Uh, what, what, how can we secure, preserve evidence, knowing it's an outside scene, knowing that we have 100 plus, you know, individuals in the area, it's in a campground, you know, we, we certainly want to identify people as they're leaving, you know, uh, maybe there's people on the list that uh, were not, their name was not properly logged in. So just from your memory, 
Is there anything you can share with people to describe to them if they haven't been there or even if they were there? What did you see when you got to the scene? What did it look like? The fire was down, it was out. Uh, there would have been lots of pellets, so it would have, obviously using you know big, large chunks of wood to, to kind of create light and heat. The lingering smoke uh, in the air. I believe there was a water tank that was kind of used there for water. If you'll remember from the first episode, Alicia recalls her last memory with Misha. They had sat near a water tank near the campfire together, talking. People scrambled. It was clear that there was something that happened. It, uh, there were tents that were down, some you know items that were broken, chairs broken, clothing scattered, cans, bottles scattered all over, um, broken glass. It was clear that there was a... Um, a large gathering party per se and then also too just walking into it you could tell that obviously people left in a in a real hurry just with what was left behind and how things were kind of left. Many years separate the time when Corporal Crocker and Staff Sergeant Schwartz are lead investigators for this homicide investigation. One point they consistently reference is the sheer number of people who were present at the party on the night of May 21st, 2006. So 170 people, you say, have been spoken with or, or been part of an interview. Is that a large number comparatively to other investigations that the major crime units might conduct? To hear, you know, as a, as a major crime member, the ONCO member, uh, taking that call, you, you want to know how many witnesses are. And, but when you hear uh, 121 people are on that list and 11 chaperones, that is a lot of witnesses on an investigation. So it's not just a regular investigation. These are uh, homicides, I believe, are complex. And having, you know, anywhere up to 200 people is, just makes it that much more difficult. So challenging, certainly, when we're dealing with those kinds of numbers with interviews. Uh, people are scared, right? You know, so... We had also an evening where it was dark. It happened during early morning. A uh, large number of, of youth present. So basically when you start breaking down a, a list and trying to get a statement from everyone that they can recall, we see some you know, similarities in statements and then we see a vast difference in statements. And again, everybody's perspective is different. It was... Certainly not clear-cut, as an investigation can sometimes be. Uh, with larger crowds, it was quite challenging. It's 12.30 in the morning. You know, we are going to start getting some daybreak in about four or five hours, six hours type thing. That's really when, you know, the investigation piece is at the scene is going to start taking place. This is the end of the second episode of Who Killed Misha Pavlik? There is one more episode in this Saskatchewan RCMP-created three-part feature. You can listen to the podcast in its entirety on the Saskatchewan RCMP website. If you want to report the information you have about this investigation, you can contact your local police service. You can also report anonymously through Crime Stoppers by calling 1-800-222-8477 or report the information you have online at sascrimestoppers.com.